we're still just learning. We're just falling flat on our faces. We clearly haven't perfected in-person education because there are still people who fall through in-person education programs all the time. And online education is so new comparatively that it's going to be a long time before we've got those best practices totally wrapped up. But I think they're both here to stay, and I'm happy to have a foot in each one because, hey, it's fun. And You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Ian Benz, uh, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And uh, my favorite teacher, I'm, I'm going to cheat and name two, uh, Jean Robido, who was my second and third grade teacher. We ca- I called her St. Jean. And um, Dr. Glenda Carter, who was my, one of my professors at NC State for my master's degree. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And since Ian cheated, I'm also going to cheat and name two, Travis Frampton and Kelly Piggott because they taught me how to ask questions. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite teacher is Ian Bins. <laughs> but no, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Zach's really been trying to make me cry in the show for a couple of times. <laughs> my favorite teacher that has taught me would probably be Robert Newman, my elementary and later middle school and high school because it was a very small school history teacher who was the first person to make history come alive to me. So we have a special guest with us today. Um, really excited about this one. It only took us, what, 40 episodes to finally get her on the podcast. She is the uh, currently the interim pastor of, and I need to get this wording exactly right, First Church of Christ Congregational United Church of Christ in North Conway, New Hampshire. Oh, thank the Lord. There's a lot of words in there. I'm sure it's a wonderful church. Your current interim and your next pastor are people that I both know and love. So I I think at least your search committee is doing something right. Um, She is a a former Sinai and Synapses fellow who um, actually was the person that got me connected to Sinai and Synapses due to our common work together in the UCC Science and Technology Network, which I got her connected to, I believe. So our lives have been intertangled. We've done a lot of work together um, in terms of communicating science and religion throughout the United Church of Christ. Um, and hopefully we will revitalize the UCC Science Technology Network together. She put together a, a vacation Bible school curriculum that seeks to teach kids about uh, science and religion when their brains are still in that world of wonder and awe. And it's not so hard for them to recognize that there's not really that much of a divide Um, She is a wonderful person and somebody who has done a lot of online theological education. And so for this episode, she is our resident expert. And in honestly, most conversations, she's a resident expert. Um, I'd like to introduce the Reverend Dr. Ruth Shaver. I'm so excited to be here. I've been so I've been avidly listening to the podcast like, oh, you're my people and I miss you. Oh, we miss you, too. Um, Ruth, what's who's your favorite teacher? 
Um, well, like Ian, I have two. Um, uh, Galinda Salinas uh, from uh, eighth and ninth grade English, who taught me that it was okay to break the rules to be a writer. And then uh, William Pickett, who was my 10th grade world history teacher and my 12th grade government teacher, who basically said to me, um, nobody's ever made straight A pluses in my class before. And you don't put a challenge like that in front of me. And so at the end of the uh, third semester that I had him, he just kind of looked at me and went, yeah, okay, never challenging a student again. Um, but he brought, <laughs> like you, Zach, he brought history alive uh, in ways that, even though I was already a history buff, just made it a lot of fun. And um, he also, very interestingly, was the first person to kind of introduce not necessarily alternative history, but his whole premise was, if you can make a C in my class if you tell me what happened. You can make a B in my class if you tell me how it happened. You can make an A in my class if you tell me why it happened and how it might be different if certain things hadn't happened. Hmm. That's so an interesting he, rubric. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like for an Doctor honors class, it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does kind of. This is, you know, before Doctor Who had made it across the Atlantic. But <laughs> um. I wonder how you would do in one of Adam's classes. He's that kind of professor I I, who who does I not. Wish like, here, I'd love to know that. Right? I, I don't think that part made it into the podcast before when we were discussing where he's like, if you do everything that I ask you to and do it well, you get a B. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably would have been a B student in Adam's class. <laughs> but he's not with us right now to defend himself. I know. He would probably so say something. We can totally trash talk him. So, because <laughs> I just want to point out that one of the episodes that was, it was the, I believe, Jurassic Park episode. That was released. I had to leave early, and uh, he he made a little comment about me, and I was like, "Why don't I defend that?" And I realized I wasn't there. <laughs> <sighs> I got to go back and listen. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's like, oh, it's on, Doctor Adam Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> he may be joining us later in this episode. If you don't hear Adam any throughout this episode, that he's not with us, but you may hear him pop up. Anyway, <laughs> the internet is super weird, isn't it? Where like we can be having this conversation across the country and just kind of pop in and pop out and people listening don't really know who's popping in and popping out. And we're trying to communicate these uh, things that we've learned over the internet. And sometimes it works and sometimes, goodness gracious, it does not translate very well. <laughs> and we spent the last two weeks talking about ritual in particular religious contexts and our efforts sometimes well and sometimes awkwardly to translate our rituals into an online format. But one of the things that I am seeing a lot of as well are people struggling to translate education into the digital sphere. Um, a lot of my, I have a, I have a, a lot of friends and, and um, church members who are high school teachers and whew, they were not prepared for this. Um, I know there's some online components to their work, but um, I have advised quite a few of them on audiovisual uh, equipment <laughs> because, you know, through the podcast, I've uh, learned a bit about that. And we have PA charter schools out here that are um, pretty, pretty big, but from the, the kids I've known that have gone through it, they've found it to be underwhelming. Um, we've had conversations among us about higher education 
and the value of online degrees. Um, at one point, I think Adam had said, when a resume comes across his desk and the person got their degree from an online school, it's like an automatic red mark right then and there that the they don't think that it can be as valid as an in-person education. And uh, I struggle with that because of the necessity now. Now it's not uh, just a choice of online versus in-person. Now we're all kind of doing it. And so I wanted to bring Ruth on here because you're somebody who has been doing this for how long with Pathways? Um, I think I facilitated my first course in 2015. Okay. So um, maybe you yeah. can just kind of tell us a little bit about what that is and um, how you do it and what its goals are. <laughs> sure. Well, so Pathways Theological Incorporated is, sorry, Pathways Theological Education, speaking of getting names right, um, <laughs> is an online platform that is designed to help people who feel a calling to church leadership, either for pastoral ministry like you and I do, Zach, or for lay leadership um, purposes, uh, like many of the other folks on this podcast do, um, to develop skills and competencies for that kind of leadership work. And so uh, for preparation for ministry, for example, there's a series of courses that are designed to emulate what we would have learned in seminary. Um, we do it in six-week courses for the most part, and they're designed to provide experiential learning uh, and uh, interaction with mostly written kinds of things, although we're starting to develop more of the video technology, we're starting to realize, oh, we're not limited to just written responses and that kind of thing. So one of the things that we're particularly interested in is helping people who can't afford to go to seminary, who can't afford to do um, common workshops and that kind of thing for lay leadership, especially in those parts of the country, um, like Kansas. Hi, Adam, um, who are <laughs> who are diversely, uh, you know, not diversely, who are geographically unable to travel because of distance and that kind of thing. So one of the things that we think we have a good specialization in is helping people in smaller churches because we're also very affordable. So a church that with deep pockets who might be able to send people to a, a big conference or something could do that, but a church that really can't afford to send somebody on an airplane and pay for a hotel and that kind of thing might be much more doable for $99 for four weeks or you know, $295 for six weeks to get some education um, and to interact with people across the country who are in similar circumstances, hmm. um, which is always interesting. And we're branching out into webinars now. We have a webinar that will have happened by the time this podcast comes out, but we're ramping up. What's into... the webinar on? The webinar is actually uh, grief and grieving during a time of pandemic. And our the Reverend Tracy Blackman, uh, who is the witness and ju justice and witness minister of the United Church of Christ, is actually facilitating that conversation for us, which is very exciting. Hmm. And several experts, and then if uh, we're assuming that that's going to succeed because we've already got 35 or 40 people registered in just the first few days of public publicity, 
but then we're going to try to build on that and do some other webinars for other other facets of life in a pandemic and then beyond that as we're starting to open up again adam's here (laughs) (laughs) did did you just realize that well i was look i had to look at something real quick i come back in i'm like there he is (laughs) we were just saying that adam may or may not pop into this call and here he is and we were roasting you (laughs) it feels right and appropriate for so many reasons Digging their hair, brother. I just, yeah. I really wish people. I could refuse see it. to go to the barber. I'm not, I'm not participating in that. None of this, this, you know, COVID sharing barber shopness. <laughs> I'm sitting at home every day, just packing up my canned goods. <laughs> just getting ready, getting ready, getting ready for end of days. There you go. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I'm not like you know, like the Infowars people. Like, I'm not gonna like like cannibalize my neighbors, but. I am gonna get canned goods. Did you guys but see you that like clip of the, the Infowars guy? Yeah, you, uh-huh. you have to like you have to look it up. It's oh my god, it's terrifying. Oh, yeah. oh great! Now you just piqued my curiosity. No, there you go. no. Oh, if you're going yeah. to go to Infowars, make sure you do so with an ad blocker so that they don't get any ad revenue. Oh from yeah, true. Yes. Going, yeah. you oh, don't yeah. want to encourage them. That's a good call. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I I had a, a a question about something that Ruth said, but I didn't know Zach if you wanted to like pause for a second to do an introduction with Adam or should we just keep going? <laughs> we should just keep going. Okay. People know who Adam. You can just add in I'll the mess it up uh, anyway, so. Donald Duck sounds later. People know who Adam something. Pryor is. Who teaches that? It's not helping us. Who teaches at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. <laughs> Lindsborg. That's right. Lindsborg. Lindsborg. Right. Don't mess it up. It's Swedish. Adam, who was your favorite teacher? Ever? Ever. It's like some sort of like Sophie's Choice question. <laughs> um, I can't. No. Moving no, on. I'm not, Go I'm not ahead. picking a favorite Andrew? teacher. That's no. There are too many who were good. <laughs> um, Just say Ian so... and move on. That's. <laughs> Ruth, I, I'm interested in when you say that. Um, the curriculum focuses on experiential learning too and how, and just knowing from experience how like difficult that can be over virtual spaces. What does that look like in particular? Um, Like using more than just the written responses. um, Like how does that, how does that play out in, in a, in a day of classes? Well, um, we're also asynchronous. So um, we're asking people to do the reading and to be reflecting as they write on how they would actually use the knowledge in a practical setting. So our courses are designed so at the end of the fourth week, there's a reflection paper or a short project that is asking people to imagine how they would apply what they've know, what they've just learned. And that prepares them then for an actual outcome project, which is the culmination at the six-week mark. Um, For us, that's a Bible study. It's a children's message. It's a sermon. It's um, a governance issue with their church. It's something that they can take using their own real-world experience to put into practice so that what they're learning then is directly applicable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ask people in our opening sessions or in a, the biographical kind of chats to identify 
their their current circumstance. So what church are they serving? What's their role? Um, and also to identify what they're hoping to get out of the course based on the objectives that are laid out in the course. And so that helps us as facilitators to kind of shepherd people to be thinking in ways of, you know, how, how might you grow? One of the things I do as a facilitator is I will actually push people. So I'll read their, read what they've written and I'll read the responses. And then I might say, okay, so building on this statement, what do you think about this? So it may not be directly related to the actual lesson of the week, but it's something that they've said that I want them to think further about that may or may not play out in their outcome project, but that often helps to build that uh, base of competency Mm -hmm. for that kind of thing. Um, And when I write courses, and I've written now four courses, and I have another one that I have to rewrite soon, I'm using my own practical experience to help me shape those courses. Like, what have I needed as a pastor that I want my participants to grasp from this course? And the, the most of the courses I've written have been Bible-based. So what do I want them to know? Well, I don't need them to know the entire corpus of the Hebrew Bible. What I need them to know is the distinctions and the tools that they can use then to reflect on those texts when they're getting ready to teach a Sunday school lesson or to write a sermon or whatever the case may be. So, yeah. you know. That's interesting. You, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and you know, it's six weeks. I can't teach an entire review, an introduction of the Hebrew Bible in six weeks, but I can give them the tools that they can then delve more deeply into that. Yeah, it's interesting. And part of the reason I ask about the the experiential part of the learning is because I think one of the concerns that I have about like online learning is the the meaningful experiences that I've had in the classroom, especially as um, an undergraduate student, where there's this exchange of tension and confusion and excitement and anger sometimes in an in-classroom discussion about just like something that's really difficult and how that looks differently in an environment that is asynchronous. But of course, there's huge benefit to having asynchronous uh, curriculum. But I just, it seems like people, we're all still trying to figure out how to (laughs) replicate that experience of the the Mm -hmm. affect of what happens whenever you are encountering someone who whose ideas are rubbing up against yours in a way that it just like you it, you learn more than just how to to argue like you're learning how to respond and think on your feet and how to like have discipline and respect and uh yeah so it's just interesting to see how people are doing that in in this new way do you do you think that like tendency to try and replicate that experience is like part of the the challenge of doing like online education, right? That like, mm-hmm. it's that sort of like innate tendency because so many of us, particularly who are like educators now, didn't grow up in an age where online education was a thing, 
right? So the natural tendency is to say, well, these were the good parts of what it was like to be in the classroom. Now, how do I make that happen online versus, right, sort of like saying, I can't do that online. So what is it that I'm going to do that's in the online format that's that's just a better way to do online education? It's like a distinct thing. I, it's it's a legitimate question. Mm-hmm. I don't have like an answer to it. I just, I'm, I'm curious. Well, I, I think one of the things that we've tried to do at Pathway is to do exactly that, Adam, to say, okay, what what's unique about the online learning experience that we can use to help our program excel in its current form? And as we expand to include other technology, how can we bring in more of the kind of in-person dialogue that you might be missing. You know, it's completely different to read somebody's post, take some time to think about a written reply and have a dialogue online than it is to have that face-to-face conversation, Um, which isn't to say that we don't sometimes have those kinds of flare-up arguments, which read like, you know, people's posts on Facebook when you get people arguing points and that kind of thing. Especially, I can always tell when people are online at the same time because it's the rapid fire and they're time dated and I sometimes have to step in and go, time out. Um, But, you know, there is that sense that there is something that cannot be done, you know. And part of what Pathways has done to kind of compensate for that is to develop some courses that are in some sense hybrid. So we have supervised ministry courses where there's an online facilitator working to do some theological reflection. And we work as facilitators with both the participant who's doing an internship and that person's site supervisor. You know, it's not the same as, you know, what CPE would be or, you know, a a pastoral residency or something like that, but it's closer to that. So, you know, trying to bridge that so we're getting some feedback from that in-person interaction with our participants and you know how are they really applying what they've learned in previous courses so for the folks who are not really in in the education world when you talk about asynchronous education um, you're talking about there being like course content that people digest on their own whether that's written or do you have like video lectures that you put up um Yes. So, so the way that the courses work is that each week runs, in our case, from Wednesday to Tuesday. So for from Wednesday to Tuesday, there'll be course material that people are supposed to consume, whether it's written or audio or video. Um, one of these days, I'm going to put together a down the wormhole certificate and get you guys to facilitate courses for me. There you speaking, go. Speaking about science and faith. Um, so, you know, Um, some facilitators do actually have video lectures that they use. A lot of us will actually pick and choose from things that are available online from other people. Like I was sorely tempted to use Bart Ehrman Mm. at one point in time, but I realized that his, all of his videos are behind a paywall and I didn't want my students to have to pay for that, but I did use one of his books. Um, but you taught a a homiletics (laughs) course this year, Yes. right? And did you have a video component to that? Um, well, actually, the the, um, teach, uh, the um, what we wound up doing because of churches closing down was I had my participants preach to each other on Zoom. Okay. Well, that's what I mean, because Which, preaching is yeah. such a visual experience um, mm-hmm. that 
it seems like you'd need to have something. Right. Well, and I'm currently I'm doing a special occasions preaching course, which I actually wrote. Um, and the outcome project is is a sermon that's highly unlikely for anybody to actually be able to preach because it's a very specific thing that incorporates multi-faith kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know, if you want to preach it to a room, go for it, <laughs> because we're all learning to preach to minimally filled or empty rooms. I'm preaching to my dining room right now. You know, and so in some sense, the fact that they the, the, this outcome project is one of those that's probably not going to apply in any specific situation is the perfect way for people to preach to a camera. This is something that a lot of educators and clergy are realizing now in the past like eight weeks is that without the energy of a living being or a room filled with living beings, it's really hard to yep. do this work. And like, for for example, if you're listening to this um, and you haven't listened to the first couple of episodes of this podcast, after this is over, go listen to episodes like one, two, and three. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. we are very different. We're very stiff. Very stiff. <laughs> trying to just trying to talk alone into a microphone. And we even have video of each other. If we we didn't have that, it would be even more weird. But trying to record a sermon alone into a webcam is a whole different beast. And it honestly, really, it comes with time more than anything. But there's, there's also some tricks to it. And in order to create something that people will actually engage with instead of feeling awkward with you. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> well, and one of the things that I learned is if I don't wear my contacts and I take my glasses off, I actually am not afraid of the camera. Oh. So I look much more natural when I can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about, so we, you know, especially as an educator, right, someone who teaches teachers and stuff, and, and given the current situation that we find ourselves in and that when this first started several weeks ago, there was even thought, you know, amongst my colleagues and some, you know, just random people that this probably won't last too long. You know, maybe, maybe this will pull over by the summer, but we'll be okay. And now there's, you know, we're getting emails and conversations almost on a daily basis of this is now what the fall may look like. You as a professor need to be prepared for those types of things. And that's at higher ed. Then you've got the K-12 setting and what that looks like. You have the church settings and, you know, in religious spaces and, you know, with our, my diocese just released guidelines that were put together by a team of people within the diocese and also, I believe, experts in the scientific community. I think that's right. But I mean, it's, it's looking like a good year or more before we are able to be back in the normal space where everyone is there. And so I'm putting all that out there because I think one of the things that you, Ruth, can provide to people that even though I have experience teaching online, it's still different than your experience. And it's different than what I will have to be prepared for in the fall. And so I'm curious, what kinds of things could you, as advice, give to two groups of people, the instructors and also the students, right? Because the students are going to have to learn how to navigate it too. You know, there's, we were even talking on a meeting I was in earlier today about there's this idea out there that if you are participating in an online instruction, that it's just not as good. Like the quality is not going to be very good. And so I'm curious, 
what are your thoughts on that? And what advice would you give people who are having to navigate this as we go? Hmm. Well, the first thing I would say to instructors in particular is um, figure out what mechanism is the best for delivering content evenly across the board. So, you know, is that going to be something like a flipped classroom where people go off and they read the basic stuff ahead of time and then whatever your online synchronous component is, whether it's conversation or that, everybody's at the same groundwork level. So instead of lecturing and then sending people off to discussion sections, could they watch the lecture or read the material first and then come together and have that conversation? Um, I think that I used that model when I was teaching in person several different times, and it was very rewarding as an instructor to see people engage with that material live in front of me instead of getting it written a month later. Um, or by video recording, as the case may be. So that's one thing to think about is how could you flip your classroom? For participants, I think it's, this comes from actually from one of my participants who's been in several of my courses with Pathways. She sets aside a very specific time each week for each course. So she pretends like she's going to class to do that work. And she says, I have three sections. So I have my reading and, and study section. And then I have my posting section where she posts the discussion questions. And then she has her reply time where she's engaging in the dialogue with other participants. Um, and she said that helps tremendously. Now it's gotten a little bit upset with the pandemic because of her work schedule being completely changed and whatnot, but that's helped her and she's getting ready to finish the program in December after having pushed her way through. So, you know, she said, I'm just pretending like I'm in seminary and I have these courses and I set this aside each time. So I think that, um, the asynchronous part is great because you don't have to be at a specific place at 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning, um, you know, but you need to have the discipline to, to do those kinds of things. Unless, of course, you have Dr. Adam Pryor as your professor. That's yes, right. well. Because <laughs> then we Just say saying. asynchronous. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to stare blankly at each other for at least the next hour. Yeah, I'm totally really. sitting in on one of your classes someday. <laughs> If it's a Zoom class, yeah. I, I got to be in on Zoom that. Zoom it. I just, I, I just want to do. I just want to see Adam do a flipped classroom. <laughs> I, I, I use a flipped classroom. Yeah. It's just my flipped oh, classroom could... involves them reading Kierkegaard out loud with me <laughs> via the video. Wait, you really have them read it out loud with you? Yeah, we really read it out loud to each other. <laughs> oh my goodness, like a book club. <laughs> yes, it was great. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it was not great, but on the other hand, Did it was really great. It was great. <laughs> like. No, so all right. So now I have not gotten my student evaluations yet, so I will I was not gonna say. say have you those yet? I will. I have not. Can but, we read those out loud together? Yes, yes yeah. we can. I will. I will pull Please. you some selections from my student evaluations that you can, uh, you know, put in here. I've got some real treasures um, that I've saved from over the years, but uh, but uh, this semester I'm particularly curious. But no, right? Like so. But two two aspects of that that I think actually worked. And I, and I do actually, I would describe that as a flipped classroom, particularly for the humanities, right? Mm -hmm. All of the lecture went into a prezi. They did that on their own. They showed up, right? And then with undergraduates, what's the thing that they're like asked to do in a humanities classroom? 
usually they said, well, go read the chapter and come back and we'll talk about it. Right. So I said, forget it. We're going to read the chapter together. It's a flat, flat ground. The prep work's been put out over here. You do a reflection afterward, right? Mm -hmm. But the the sort of actual structure of the classroom is taking what would normally happen outside of it and putting it into the classroom. That mm -hmm. that part's I'm on board with, right? Um, and the students like truly hated it at first. <laughs> um, like hardcore, nearly mutinied kind of hated it. Um it is that's the time I would have wanted to sit in on the class. Yes. I, and, and particularly at first, right? Like um, there was this sort of like weird. So at first I tried like we would just read on our like we'd read a paragraph at a time on our own and then we'd talk about it. And that was way worse because mm. there's nothing, nothing more awful than sitting in silence with the video screen on um, <sighs> and realizing people can watch you read. No, that's horrible. So then yeah. we started reading out loud to each other. Um, but that is also uh, like, I forget that that's like a really practiced art that pastors are super comfortable with and 18 year olds really aren't. Mm. Um, and so that took a little while to like get past, like, it's okay for me to ask what this word is when I'm reading out loud, even if I don't know what it is. But all of which I will, I will argue that by the end, it was actually a good experience mm -hmm. pedagogically in terms of saying like, okay, mm -hmm. now I'm more comfortable doing these things and asking these sorts of questions. So by the end of there are like pandemic time, they were like asking like questions that would actually have gone further than I think they normally would have in the classroom mm. um, because they had gotten so used to sort of doing this. Now, again, this falls in my pedagogy of shame strategy um, <laughs> where like you, you have to have that sort of feeling of humiliation where you read a word out loud that you don't know to get to that point. Ugh. Um did I ever tell you about the time I said Descartes in class instead of Descartes? Yeah, you did. <laughs> and you remember it. And now you'll never make that mistake again. I'll never and say also, Descartes again. You can you can laugh about it now. And that's why you're such a good learner. <laughs> Tragedy plus time equals comedy. <laughs> that's what te that that is education in a nutshell for me. Hi, this is Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. Down the Wormhole came out of our Interfaith Fellowship, but Sinai and Synapses also has projects directed towards Judaism and science. We have an open application for our project Scientists in Synagogues, which would give your community $3,600 to do work on Judaism and science. The deadline is July 23rd, and you can see it at SinaiAndSynapses.org. Thanks very much. I just say though how i mean you said just now that how awkward it is to realize that people can watch you read but if you're in a room with actual living people they can all see you at all times doing all the things that you do and none of us ever think that's weird but i wonder and i was thinking this last night in our consistory meeting as awkward as i felt with the dozen people in front of me and like are they looking at me? I, I can't like scratch my face. I can't look around. But I, I, I wonder if it's because I can also see me right mm -hmm. now. And I can't normally see me. And so my sense of yep. of self and my place in the universe is so me focused when it's just me with other humans. But when I'm on a Zoom call or right now where I can see myself with all of you, I have this weird 
like disassociated out of body experience happening right now. And I, I, so it's John, weird. I think Start that's right true, about but that. also yeah. like you can't, you can't sense people looking at you via online platforms in the same way that you can sense people watching you in person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, that what do you mean? also I, is weird. Like, like you don't I, know I'm yesterday, staring at you right now. Right, exactly. Yeah. I don't know who you're looking at. You're right in the middle. You of have to screen, signal so. who you're looking <laughs> at. Ruth but is right in the middle. I uh, was right. on a, a a call yesterday doing a writing group with several of the students in my department, and it was the first time for many of us to do a writing group where you know you like check in, set your goals, and then we sat with our cameras on for mm-hmm. two hours doing our work and then checked in for 15 minutes at the end. And I thought at the beginning, this is going to be very strange. And it was, <laughs> but it, the reason it's strange is because you, like, you know that you are giving people access to watch you, but you don't know when someone like lifts their head and like turns to look at you. If you're at a table, you know that someone is doing that. And then you stop mm-hmm. and look and turn to see them. But I don't know, like the 12 people on my screen, they could all be staring at me and I would never know it. Yeah. So I think that in combination with your disembodied feeling, Zach, is why it's Mm -hmm. all so strange. Mark Mark and I meet, um, Mark Bloom, my research partner and I, we meet uh, typically once a week. And he's always been in Dallas area and I've always been either Louisiana or here primarily here is when we really got into that routine. And so, yeah, we will get on, on, you know, something like this, a video thing for a couple of hours each week and write together and do work and stuff and catch up and those types of things. And so there's many times where we've forgotten, but I mean, we're such good friends. It doesn't matter, but I totally get it where people have come in his office and they've not known that I was there. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you guys can probably imagine, I very many times have like whispered something <laughs> and all of a sudden you'll see, like if, if I could see the person, you'll see them look around <laughs> and I'll totally mess with everybody. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you'll hear him go, Ian, <laughs> he'll say, sorry, Ian, my research partner, Ian's here. And then he'll mute me and I can't, I can't do it anymore, but it's so much fun. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like it's important to like emphasize that, that Kendra has just described the panopticon. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so yeah. Jeremy Bentham writes this 18th century <laughs> social theorist, right? Who's, who comes up with a prison whereby it can only be, su- where it can be supervised by one guard because you put this tower in the middle. Right. And so the guard can look at any prisoner at any point, but they don't know when the guard is looking at them. Right. Yeah. Um, that so, makes this so much darker, Adam. <laughs> you're welcome. Of course Adam's <laughs> going to do that. I mean, it's That's not Adam's unexpected specialty. for Adam, but I just hadn't been thinking about it this way. And right. now, so now I, you know I cannot your, your unsee writing this. writing group is now a prison, right? Oh. So that's, that's really the sort of structure. You ruined everything. I do. <laughs> but I think it does explain like why this is like so discomforting, right? Like the fact that yeah. you can draw that analogy that quickly, right, is part of what's sort of, sort of at odds here, right? And like Zach's description of like being able to watch yourself, right? And the the sort of oddity of that, right? That's Jean-Paul Sartre's description of the peeping Tom, right? The peeping Tom feels like they're in their own world where no one can see them, but they see this other person. And suddenly when they're discovered, there's a vulnerability that's put there. Except now when we can all see our own faces, we're vulnerable to ourselves all of the time. 
in ways that no one is comfortable with and we never want to share with other people. That's why we only look at ourselves in the mirror in the bathroom where no one will find us. <laughs> right. Hmm. Well, and, you know, and as far as, as the online piece of that, you know, in especially when you're doing synchronous education, that discomfort level plays a part in how well people actually receive what it is that the uh, instructor is trying to communicate. And so, you know, if you're totally freaked out at your own appearance online, you're not mm -hmm. paying attention to what's being given in terms of conversation or in terms of information, as well as you might be if you were sitting in a classroom and, you know, just looking at the instructor or looking at the presentation and that kind of thing. And it's funny, I've developed the habit of looking at the person who's speaking. So like I've got Zach and Kendra and Ian and now Adam, you know, but I'm still aware of my own movement and I can distract myself just by moving my head or moving my hand. Right. And the, I find myself losing my train of thought a lot more easily on video meetings because I distract myself. Mm -hmm. So when I, this semester, especially, so I, both of my classes were online anyway, and, but one of them had a hybrid component to it. Um, and it was the same class, just two separate sections. And then when we went into, you know, with the pandemic, I had to switch the last two face-to-face -face meetings to meetings like this. And I found that when meeting with them and also with the other section too, I always offer this up for the other section as well, that I, I really want them to turn their cameras on. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that because it, to me, it was very weird that I had my camera on and it's not like I was getting dressed up like I was going to work. You know, I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and they would be like, well, I don't know. I'm like, guys, we're all in this together. Just turn the camera on. Um, and and I, I wouldn't make it a big deal, but there were definitely some who were adamantly opposed to having their camera on because they just felt like I just can't be seen right now. And I thought that was very interesting. It added a different dynamic, especially when I would see 15 to 20 little black boxes and then me and my bobbing head and all that kind of stuff and my quirky movements. And um, it was weird. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, those online pieces when you're doing them synchronously, people's experience of the course, like in Zoom where you have the gallery view or you have speaker view, you know, I try to encourage people in meetings and whatnot to put it on gallery view so that we're seeing each mm -hmm. other at the same time instead of it flipping back and forth, partly because it's less distracting that way. I mean, the little box lights up, but also because it's as close to being in the room and watching body language and seeing people's faces and expressions and stuff, which mitigates a little bit of that weirdness of being online. And that piece of online education that's asynchronous is a real detriment in many ways because I can't see my students responses when they're trying to answer a question because they're doing it in writing from the privacy of their own home. Whereas if I were, you know, doing something like Adam did with a reading and then a discussion, I'd be able to see people's discomfort or their quizzical looks or whatever, or their, I really don't get this and somebody needs to help me kind of expressions. Every once in a while, I'll get a panicked phone call. Dr. Shaver, what are you talking about? Um, it's like, oh, I could have written that sentence a little better. And the other piece of the online asynchronous education is that when you're communicating in writing, it's never quite as complete as an in-person communication can be because we lack that body language. Video attenuates that a little bit, but even then you still have the camera as kind of that 
barrier mm. a little bit. You know, so, you know, it, there's no such thing as perfect education in any format. Um, but I think when you're talking about moving things that have always been in person to online, the key is to find the strengths of online that can help mitigate what you're losing in the on in the in-person so stuff. That's a good transition into my question to all of you. Um, I all of you are educators. That's that's neat. I am the only clergy person here. <laughs> That, that doesn't uh, no. usually happen. No, no, I mean, no, you're no, both. No, 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 no. Your title is pastor and teacher in the United Church of Christ, Zach. All right. Oh. All right. All right. She got you there. <laughs> I don't count you, Zach. You can just be a pastor. <laughs> anyway, there has been such a push in recent years towards the onlineification of of education. I'm going to use that word, by the way, just, just letting you know, onlineification. Onlineification. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's one of those made up words like Fatberg. Trademark it right there. Ago. <laughs> um, and there's been such pushback from entrenched educators who have always done it this way and sees technology as unnecessary or uh potentially psychologically damaging even. Um, and obviously that the, the, the quality of education might not be up to par um, as, as it is in person, but there's, uh, mm. there's been this, this push because it's uh, in terms of cost and accessibility and all of this, but now we're kind of all forced into it and we're having to figure this out as we go. And this pandemic won't last forever. God willing. Um, <laughs> no, it's just going to become endemic instead of pandemic. <sighs> well, Kat Robinson, by the way, um, wrote on our um, on on the introductory thread on the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group, which you should all join. She wrote the phrase "Corona willing," and <laughs> <laughs> I love it now. <laughs> this is why okay. you got to join Facebook, buddy. Yeah. That's what I look. Rachel tells me when there's a good one. I mean, she missed that one, so I'll I'll like continue to tell Has her Rachel she's not curating enough. I think she. I can't remember if she did or not. She said she was thinking about joining it just to tell you all all of the stupid things that I do, and I wouldn't know she was doing it. <laughs> this is Rachel Pryor, um, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Rachel yeah. Jackson. We really right. want Rachel Pryor. To <laughs> I'll send her a private message. Yeah. <laughs> When we do end this and we go back to whatever whatever the new new normal is, will we just have done this for so long that parts of the onlineification of education is now permanent? Yes, I believe so. And it, it's interesting. So as a science educator, right, and and that is a, a broad category, but my my specialty when it comes to the teaching part is primarily science methods, so how to teach science. And there is um, 
for a long time, there's been a lot of conversation within the science education community about can you effectively teach a science methods course online? And there's, you know, definitely, I mean, it's not like there's battles, but there's definitely pushback against that idea. And there are some who have done it and have done it very well. You know, I've never really done it. I've had, you know, parts of my, you know, I'll, I have a class meeting or a couple of class meetings that will be online, online modules. But to be prepared to do it for potentially a semester, at least, where I need to be prepared for that is definitely a challenge. And I think it will become part of my um, toolkit for teaching throughout the rest of my career for that kind of course, because I will learn of different ways to be able to get, you know, to teach these people how to teach students and different resources and different strategies that they can then use in their own classrooms to potentially enhance what it is they couldn't do. So I think it will be here to stay. I have, I have really mixed feelings about that question. <laughs> I'm shocked. Are you are you about to deny the premise of it and restate no, no, it no, for no, your no. own? No, 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 I'm not going to deny it. No, I think, it's, I think it's a great question. I just don't like any of so the you answers like that the I'm question. coming up with. Uh, okay. So, yeah, the fact that I like it is part of the mixed feeling. Um, so, <laughs> I no, I, it, I, I think I agree with Ian, right? Like, I, I feel like that you will see people who now have new tools in the toolbox for how they teach, right? And that part won't go away. And I think it's going to kill some traditional features of education that we think of, particularly in higher ed. I don't know about everywhere else, right? But like, it's really hard for me to see where the in-person lecture returns as a modality that people can use because I don't think it's going to be cost-effective. Really? Cost-effective? I can see it being used still for very large classes. Why is it not? But that's about it. Large universities. <laughs> because I think. You know, oh, wait. Oh, no. Oh, oh yes. Kendra's going to disagree. This yay, be good. Yay. I want you to finish first so oh, that wait, I can wholeheartedly disagree with okay, everything good. that you say <laughs> instead of just part of it. Well, we'll send you back to your prison. Uh, so, um, <laughs> uh, so, no, like, I, I mean, I, I think when I, when I think about the cost effective piece, right, like, I can pack 500 kids in a room. Great. I can do the lecture. But once I have those lectures recorded and I start offering things in a high flex model, right? Not only can I have those 500 kids in the room, but I can also have the thousand kids outside of it who couldn't come to my campus. So the traditional in-person lecture suddenly shifts to becoming this, this sort of new thing, I think, um, supported by a denizen of TAs who are, you know, populating out the the message that has been put there. I think something like that stays, right? And the the traditional like I'm going to have lecture with my 40 students starts to die as a result, hmm. right? Because it becomes too it becomes almost too necessary and too easy to pull that lecture from somebody else, pop it in, tell the student they have to watch it and now I need to do something else with those students in the classroom. Um and on a sheer numbers basis that starts to shift the way that things are, are the way in which we teach not because i think that's the best way to do it but because i think the capitalistic argument about education is going to be that this is the most cost effective way to do it mm -hmm. i think the one place where that gets resisted is in the humanities or social science seminar the sort of space where you cannot and i think what the pandemic has shown is it is almost impossible to replicate 
the structure of putting 10 people in a room Socratically. Mm. Mm -hmm. There still will be a place for that, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be expensive. And I think that difference is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Now, should I go get some popcorn before you respond, Kendra? (laughs) Well, actually, Adam really came (laughs) back around at the end. And I think, uh, like, Kendra likes to agree. I, I, at first I thought Adam was, uh, trying to, which would have been uncharacteristic of Adam, but it sounded like you were about to support the capitalist argument in oh, reduction no, no, no. of yeah, no. the classroom as it's something that position. should be like, yeah, but no, I, 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 I do still disagree that, I mean, while, okay, I just have a lot of feelings. Let me sort them out for a second. Don't go. Just go. (laughs) It's not even that dramatic. I just, I think that I just don't think that the forty-person classroom lecture style will die out as quickly as maybe Adam does. So it's not even a dramatic disagreement. I just think that even if that is inconvenient, there's still all the other connecting pieces of what it means to be a university student. Like it's not just about going to a lecture style class, which sure is like boring and you sit there and it, yeah, it could be done online, but there's also the way that you walk down the hallway and see the flyers to all the clubs on campus and you talk to your teacher after class and you make friends and like all these things that are exciting and important for 18 year olds who've just moved out of their parents' houses to go Mm. live on this campus. And it's, a rite of passage in a way that I don't think will be easily overthrown via online forms of education. And I think that is, I mean, sure, it is expensive, but there's something that is really hard to quantify about that, that like it's not going to go down without a fight, I guess. (laughs) And it's, I mean, that's already an argument, I think, especially with humanities faculty trying to like argue the value of something that is hard to quantify whenever we're teaching classes that are, you know, not STEM field classes, that it's already something that is like a hyper concern for uh, us. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I agree with the the toolkit analogy of the things that we're learning now will be useful forever. But I think if if it's true, and I don't really know whether or not it's true, but if it's true that online education cannot replicate the in-person experience of a classroom, not in the sense of like, oh, I'm sitting in a lecture, but the experience of debate and thinking through arguments and learning and teaching, like carrying someone's um, affect and responding in this really embodied way, if online education cannot replicate that, then I don't think there's any way, I don't feel hopeful that there's any way that online education could ever become a permanent replacement. Right. Um, well, and and I and I think part, part of me says that the dramatic change is going to be in those first two years of college experience, where they're really the foundational years where you have a lot of those big in-person lectures and that kind of thing. I mean, Okay, I'm going to speak about way longer ago at Boston University than you were even born, Kendra, uh, I think. Um, but um, 
you know, I would sit in a lecture hall with 500 people for an archaeology lecture and then have 10 people in the study group. And I got more out of the study group than I did out of the lecture for that particular thing because it was more hands-on, because it was more interactive. So I'm wondering, you know, if those first two years of the basic information will be dramatically changed by the online capacity with maybe just then those, you know, study sections and that kind of thing. And if it's the third and fourth years of college where you begin to get into those seminars and those deeper discussions where the cost effectiveness comes into play, you know, and maybe if the shift and it's going to be a generation or more before the shift happens, where what we now think of as community colleges become very much the norm with that online piece. And then universities are those third and fourth year and graduate studies where, you know, especially where a lot of what what's projected in terms of the necessary jobs and that kind of thing are more skill-based in the future. And so you want people to be well-rounded enough to be STEAM instead of just STEM, but they don't necessarily need the four-year college degree that we think of right now. And did I make any sense at all? Mm-hmm. No, it does. That, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I I am pretty pro Kendra on the like the like the residential college piece. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm probably not I'm not quite like with the the crowd that's like it's gonna die as a result of this. I'm like no, it, it's gonna be around. Um, like mm-hmm. I think there are social and developmental reasons why it'll stay around um, when it when it sort of gets down to it. Right. I mean, like, I, I think you could ask most college graduate, we, we could probably ask ourselves, right? Like if you, if you think about the things that you most remember from college, right? Maybe there's one or two things from the classroom, but there are a whole lot of things not in the classroom that were mm-hmm. probably a lot more important about that college experience, right? Those aren't things that are going on. And we online. may not remember all of them. <laughs> and may Just not want to admit all of them either. <laughs> Yeah, well, hey, you know. maybe that'll be our question to start next week. But um, yeah. which which experience don't you remember? <laughs> which college experience which, could have gotten yeah. you expelled had you been found out? <laughs> well, okay, I'm happy to say I never had one of those. But sadly, I also remember all of my college experiences because you know I just didn't get into the whole party atmosphere. But I could have. Especially after my father announced to me that the third floor of Mugar Library was one of the top pickup spots in the country. Oh, he said this to wow. me when I was a senior in high school after he had already let me let me send my acceptance letter to Boston University. The third That's my dad floor of Mugar? That yep. place is sad. How is that well, a pickup spot? <laughs> well, no, no. Well, okay. The times Once again, are changing. the difference. <laughs> Once again, the age difference is at play here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but yeah, I, and I think, you know, I, I do think that developmentally that's very true, but I also think that there's, that our American society, Western society in general, and maybe world society is changing in the fact that we now recognize that we don't get to be adults as young as we've always implied that we do by our education system. And so I wonder if, as we begin to recognize and begin to accommodate the fact that, you know, we don't truly mature until our early to mid twenties, if some of that is going to play out in how soon people fledge 
and especially, you know, the the helicopter parent generation hasn't helped that, but, you know, to have that, that, that it may just be part of a societal shift anyway, and that what we're learning out of the pandemic, you know, moves us along that way a little further. I'm just speculating, you know, I could be talking totally out of nothing, but I do that a lot. So would the online component make uh, higher education more affordable or not, not really, because uh, this is such an important ritual for coming of age um, it, for so many people, but in the past couple of decades, it's become a lot more cost prohibitive as a, as a ritual. If, if this could help, then that would be wonderful. But Adam is shaking his head. It's it not going to do anything for cost. No. Okay, great. So does, does anyone have any final thoughts on, on the matter? Well, I, speaking as somebody who's done both um, online and in-person teaching, I think they're both here to stay. And I think that finding best practices that work across the platforms is going to be really essential to improve education across the board. And that's from pre-K all the way through. Um, There are things you can do online that you can't easily do in person, such as have a group from all over the world which could be a very beneficial educational experience. There are things that you cannot do online, such as, you know, sit there together and each of you at your own science station figuring out, okay, did I do all of this right? And is my experiment going to come out the same way as everybody else's, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, there, there's a both and to it. And I think human ingenuity is going to figure out the best ways to employ the best of each world. And we're still just learning. We're just falling flat on our faces. We clearly haven't perfected in-person education because there are still people who fall through in-person education programs all the time. And online education is so new comparatively that it's going to be a long time before we've got those best practices totally wrapped up. But I think they're both here to stay, and I'm happy to have a foot in each one because, hey, it's fun. And, you know, there's a universe in which I'm a teacher of nearly any subject you want to go. There's probably multiple universes where in each one I teach a different subject. And I actually know more in each of those universes about everything than I know anything now. Whoa. (laughs) Well, thank you for being in this universe with us (laughs) Um, for for this hour. Um, I, I, I hope that we can have you on again and it won't take another 40 episodes to get there. Amen to that. This has been episode 40 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Woohoo! There is something about multiples of 10 that just make me feel a little extra celebratory. And we couldn't do it without our supporters on Patreon, whose generous donations have helped us to finally upgrade how we record this podcast and dramatically simplify my life. Y'all are the best. Make sure you check out downthewormhole.com for show notes and contact information. And if you haven't already joined, please make sure to join the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group. It's such a great little community, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Next week, we are taking you on a tour to that kind of weird corner of YouTube where people whisper to you while pretending to cut your hair and crinkle paper around a 3D microphone for an hour. Oh, yeah. 
it's time for some ASMR. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just look it up on YouTube and look forward to our next episode. Till next week, stay safe, friends, be kind to one another, and in case society collapses... I'm sitting at home every day just packing up my canned goods. It's good. Getting ready.